So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the text first this morning, and then um, we'll get into it. So it's going to be Luke 10, 25 to 37. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles on the table in front of you. And if you don't own one, feel free to take one of those home with you. It's our gift to you. Um, and the words will also be on the screen behind me as well. So Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. Here's what it says. And behold, a lawyer stood up to test him, that's Jesus, stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan... As he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil on him and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think? proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So we're in the midst of a series right now called Look. Uh, our strategy at Fellowship Oshawa uh, is called the Look Strategy. Uh, so our mission is to light the way to life-changing encounters with God, life-giving relationships with other people. And so by strategy, we mean, well, how are we going to do that, right? How are we going to light the way to life-changing encounters with God in the midst of our city? Uh, or another way to say it is, how can you become a disciple who does what Jesus did for the same reasons that Jesus did it? Well, the answer is look. Look up, look in, look out. You can actually see them on the banners there. Look up to God, look in the community, look out to the world. We've talked about look up and look in the past few weeks, and today we're going to move to look out. We'll be spending the next couple of weeks talking about looking out. What does that mean to look out to the world, okay? And today, specifically, we're going to be talking about serving others. We'll be talking about serving others. So how many of you guys know one of those people who's just hard to love? Anybody know somebody that's just hard to love? Yeah, yeah. Raise your hand if you're sitting next to him. No, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. Don't put him on the spot. Don't put him on the spot. So, you know, this, this story, uh, in a lot of ways, is going to give us an example of somebody that loved somebody who was hard to love, somebody that was not like them. So, uh, the lawyer uh, that comes, by the way, a lawyer uh, is not like a lawyer that we would think about today. It's not somebody who was a prosecutor or a defense attorney. A lawyer was somebody who knew the Jewish law, the law of God, the Old Testament, right? So they would be uh, like a scholar, right? A biblical scholar maybe would be somebody uh, that we would think of today, a theologian, okay? And this lawyer, he comes up to put Jesus to the test, right? And he asked Jesus, 
what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Probably hoping to catch Jesus in saying, into saying something that he shouldn't have said. And Jesus turns it around on him. He goes, well, you know the Bible. What does it say? <laughs> right? That's basically what it says. You read the law. What it, you tell me. And he gives the correct answer. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. But then it says that he wanted to justify himself. Okay? And so he asks a question, kind of a qualifier. Okay, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus answers with a story, doesn't he? Right? Jesus doesn't ever really actually answer his question. He doesn't say, well, your neighbor is this person or this person or this person. He kind of turns the spotlight back on the lawyer who's asking the question. And it becomes a parable about, hey, you don't need to worry about who your neighbor is. You need to worry about your own heart, right? And so he tells this story about a Samaritan man. Now, to give you, it's hard for the weight of this story to hit us like it would have hit a first century Jewish person. Um, because Jews and Samaritans did not like each other at all, right? And so that really helps us to understand this parable, okay? Jews and Samaritans despised one another. Uh, the Jews typically looked at Samaritans as half-breeds because uh, they, uh, back hundreds of years earlier, there was a split in the kingdom of Israel, a north kingdom and a south kingdom, and the Samaritans ended up intermarrying uh, with Gentiles, and that's why they became the Samaritans. And so uh, the people from the southern kingdom, who were the Jews, did not like them at all, okay? So uh, they didn't think too kindly of helping one another. And Jesus shares a story about a Jewish man who's going from Jerusalem to Jericho, which was a historically very dangerous route. It was about 17 uh, miles and it was, uh, it was in a mountainous region with a lot of caves, so it was a popular place for robbers uh, to basically jump people and rob them and steal their stuff. Uh, and this would have been very well known at the time. And this man gets robbed, and he's beaten, and he's half dead on the side of the road, okay? And first a priest walks by. Well, priests are pretty godly people, right? I mean, priests are the ones who represent the nation of Israel on behalf of God. They actually present the sacrifices on behalf of the people, on behalf of the nation to God. But this priest sees him and just kind of walks away. We don't really know why. Perhaps it's because the man was bloodied and the priest knew that if he touched him, he might be unclean, right? And ceremonially unclean where he'd have to wash himself. Maybe not. We don't know. Maybe he just didn't want to be inconvenienced and he was in a hurry. A Levite comes by, does the exact same thing, but then a Samaritan, the, the despised Samaritan comes. And these Samaritans who can do no good, well, he stops and he has compassion on him. And he ends up taking care of this traveler and binding up his wounds, putting him on his donkey so that he walks and then he takes him to an inn and cares for him and even leaves money extra to let him stay there a couple of weeks and says, if you spend any more than this, just put it on my tab, and I'll pay it when I get back. He takes responsibility. So there's two questions that I want to answer uh, based off of this parable this morning. Who is our neighbor, and how do we love them? Okay. Who is our neighbor, and how do we love them? Those are the two questions that we are going to spend the rest of the time discussing them. Uh, and these are important questions because Jesus tells the lawyer at the end of this parable, do this and you will live. Right? Do this and you will live. Who wants eternal life? Who likes to live? Me too. So it would behoove us if we paid attention to this parable. It's an important topic for Jesus, so that means it should be an important one for us. So 
number one, who is your neighbor? I'm going to go ahead and give you the answer up front, and then we'll break it down to this question, okay? We'll break, we'll break down the answer. Who is your neighbor? Your neighbor is anybody that you have the ability and the opportunity to love. Anybody that you have the ability and the opportunity to love or to serve. So at the end of the parable, Jesus asked the lawyer, which of these three proved to be a neighbor? And the answer is the Samaritan. It's, by the way, interesting that the uh, lawyer can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan, isn't it? Didn't you notice that? He says, what does he say? He says, the one who showed mercy. He can't even say the word Samaritan. That's interesting. So the, the Samaritan proved to be the neighbor, not the priest and the Levite. This is a twist in the story. You would expect the, the holy men to be the men that proved to be the neighbor, that they passed by. You see, they thought that God was impressed with how godly they were, with their church attendance and their Bible reading and the fact that they went to small group every week. I know they didn't have small group back then, but you get the point. I'm trying to bring it into 21st century, right? And they thought that God was impressed with all of these things, but they did not prove to be a neighbor. They didn't want to be inconvenienced by this guy who was lying on the side of the road. But the Samaritan man stops to help a Jew. And you have to also think about the people who are listening to this story, listening to Jesus tell the story. I mean, this would have been a shocking thing for them to hear. He's turning cultural expectations upside down, essentially, is what Jesus is doing here. Jesus makes the Samaritan the hero of this story. He makes the Samaritan the hero. So what is Jesus getting at here? Why is he doing this? Why is he telling this story? I think what he's getting at is that he's trying to communicate to them that what makes you unclean in God's eyes is not what you touch on the outside, but what your heart is like on the inside. What makes you unclean is not what you touch on the outside, it's what your heart is like on the inside. The Samaritan, ironically, proved to know the law better than the actual lawyers, than the priests, than the Levites. He obeyed the law better than they did. It reminds me of Isaiah 58, 5 to 7. The Lord is speaking through Isaiah to his people, and here's what he says. He says, is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it a day to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? So what he's saying is he's going, you guys are putting on this show. You're putting on this charade and you're coming in and you're, you're, you're bowing down and you're putting sackcloth and ashes on yourself and acting like you're holy. And meanwhile, look at verse 6 and 7. He says, is this not the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free? And to break every yoke, is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? What God is saying is they were, they were rejecting those things. They were not doing those things. They were neglecting the poor. They were not feeding the hungry. They were not tending to the oppressed. They were not rejecting wickedness. And yet they were coming into God's house and acting pretentious and righteous. And God says, guys, you're missing the point. I don't care about all this stuff. I don't care about your worship services and all these things. And in fact, in another place uh, in, in Jeremiah, he's going to say, those things are detestable to me when you do those things. 
and yet you neglect the poor, and you neglect the needy, and you neglect the outcast. God doesn't want rule followers. He wants sons and daughters who bear his image, who are like him. 1 John 4, 8 says, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. How we love our neighbor, and our way our neighbor is anybody we have the ability and opportunity to, to love, how we love our neighbor sets us apart as Christ followers. There's a, um, a really fascinating quote. Uh, in the, first, the fourth century, uh, in the early church, uh, the Christians uh, were being badly persecuted by the Roman Empire, okay? And there is in Emperor Julian's uh, journal, and in his writings, he actually uh, was writing a letter, and in it, he referred to the problem of these pesky Christians that they were trying to get rid of. And here's what he wrote. I want to read this to you. He says, and he's going to call Christianity atheism, by the way. The reason they called Christianity atheism, does anybody know why Romans would, back then would call Christianity atheism? Because Roman, Romans worshipped like they had more gods than you could keep count of. There was a God for everything. And so the fact that Christians said, no, there's one true God and we worship him, they, they, they saw the Christians as denying all of the gods. And so they would call Christians atheists. So that's why he calls them atheists here in this quote. He says, atheism has been specially advanced through their loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor but for ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render to them. Isn't that awesome? He's like, these pesky Christians, there's nobody poor among them because they're taking care of everybody. Right? This is looking out. This is being a Christian. It sets Christ followers apart. Your neighbor may be people who aren't like you and people who can't help themselves as well, by the way. And this, this traveler on the side of the road, he certainly couldn't help himself, could he? He was beaten on the side of the road, right? They didn't have cell phones. He couldn't call an Uber to take him to the hospital. Jericho was a really, really long way away. He's not going to be able to get there. If somebody doesn't stop and help this man, he will die. He needed somebody to come to his aid. Without that, he had no hope. And, you know, sometimes today, people who can't help themselves can be hard to love, right? Because a lot of times, really what it comes down to is they, they don't have anything to offer us back, do they? People who can't help themselves don't have anything to give us in return. So if we're going to help them, it's going to have to be an act of sacrificial service. And sometimes it's messy helping people who are hard to love, people who can't help themselves. But, you know, Jesus always chose to be with people who are messy. Just look at his disciples, right? I was reading uh, earlier this week, uh, again, the account of where Jesus calls Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. Again, another person that people did not like. People didn't like tax collectors at all. And Jesus, who's a rabbi, who's a very popular rabbi already at this point, who's got crowds following him, he's been performing miracles, he stops at this man's tax booth and he says, hey you, I want you to come and follow me and be my disciple. Come on. That, guys, like, that never happened. 
in that community. Ever. Ever. You did not see rabbis call tax collectors to come and be their disciples. That would have made people's jaws hit the floor in first century Palestine. They would have been shocked that he had called these fishermen and these tax collectors and these zealots to follow him. These people that were despised. Why would you choose them? I'm so much better than them. Why would you choose those people? If you want to see God at work, be around the needy because that's where he is. That's where God's at work. People who aren't like you or people you don't like. Those are our neighbors too. I read a story about a guy named um, Hassam al-Kalawachi who's a Christian uh, and he was in Mosul in uh, 2017, Mosul, Iraq. Uh, and at this time in early 2017, ISIS basically had control over Mosul. And there, there was a mandate given out, a, uh, told Christians, uh, you've got a couple of choices. Uh, you can either leave, uh, you can convert to Islam, or you can pay a heavy tax uh, to remain here. And many of them were being imprisoned and tortured and killed. And he had a Muslim neighbor. His neighbor was a Muslim. And at the risk of his life, it was the penalty for a Muslim to aid a Christian was death under IS rule. And at the risk of his own life, this Muslim man took his Christian neighbor and hid him in the trunk of his car and smuggled him past several checkpoints to safety so that he could flee the region and save his life. That's a modern-day Good Samaritan story. You know... Um, I'm glad that I don't, I don't see this as much here. Uh, it's one of, the, one of the great things about Canada. For those of you who don't know, um, I'm from the States, and I was reading that story, and I was like, boy, there's a lot of people that, that I know on Facebook that need to hear that story. A lot of people that don't want to have anything to do with Muslims and don't, you know, don't care about Muslims. And I'm like, guys, this is the Good Samaritan all over again. This Muslim man is acting more Christ-like than you are, <laughs> right? Your neighbor may not be like you at all. And he may even be your enemy. Your neighbor may even be your enemy. But Jesus says that in Matthew 5, we need to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. He's saying, look, if, if you've been born again, if you're my child, you will have my DNA in you. And God loved us when we were his enemies. Jesus died for us while we were still sinners. So if his DNA is in us, we'll do the same. We will love so that we may be sons of your Father in heaven. So the point, your neighbor is anybody that you have the ability and the opportunity to love. So that is who our neighbor is. But next question we need to answer is, okay, how do you love them? How do you love your neighbor? Well, let's look at what the Samaritan did in this parable. There's four things that stick out to me that the Samaritan did. Number one, he saw him. See those little words, those three words in the beginning of verse 33? It says, he saw him. Sometimes it's as simple as just noticing other people, isn't it? Sometimes it's as simple as notice, noticing other people. Ask God. God, show me where you're at work around me. It's so easy for us to do things like go to the store and go shopping and come home, and we literally didn't even notice any of the people around us. 
Like it's like they're not even there, right? We can put these blinders on almost and we get focused and we're on a mission and we just can go out and come back without even seeing the needs of the people around us. You know, sometimes uh, I know I go to no frills and a lot of times out front there'll be a guy out front asking for money, right? Uh, you'll see them kind of sitting out front out there and it's it's so easy for us to just to just walk by, and maybe the reason we do it is because, well, I don't have any cash in my pocket right now, or I don't, I don't have any change, so we walk by, but, but could you pray for him? Could you encourage him? Could you acknowledge that he's a human being, that he matters to God? We get on this mission, and we have busy schedules to keep, much like the priest and the Levite, who pass by the injured traveler. And oftentimes we don't know our neighbor's needs because we don't even take the time to slow down enough to ask them. Like I'm talking about your physical neighbors, the people that live next door to you and across the street from you. Have you taken the time to ask them? And here's the deal, not seeing the needs around you is not a good excuse to fail to love your neighbor. Not seeing the needs is not a good excuse to fail to love your neighbor. Jesus told a a shocking parable in Matthew chapter 25. And uh, it, was, it was illustrating what uh, the end times are going to be like, what Judgment Day is like. And he said, on Judgment Day, I'm going to gather everybody together, and I'm going to separate the sheep from the goats. What was the distinguishing mark that Jesus said between the sheep and the goats? Was, were, was it that the goats didn't go to church and say their prayers? Was it the, that the goats didn't uh, you know, read their Bible enough? Was it that the goats weren't righteous enough or, or you know, holy enough that... You know, they kept on drinking and never stopped, or they kept on smoking. No, that's not what it is, is it? What, Je- what does Jesus say? He says to his sheep on his right, he, come, he says, come and enter into the kingdom prepared for my father, because when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick and in prison, you visited me. And they said, Jesus, when did, when did we see you sick or in prison or, or hungry or, or naked? And he says, when you did it to one of the least of these, you did it to me. And then to the goats, he said, depart from me into everlasting darkness. And, they, and he, he says, because when I was hungry, you didn't pay attention. When I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. When I was sick and in prison, you didn't take the time to visit me. When I was naked, you did not clothe me. And they said, Lord, when, when did we see you? Hungry or, or thirsty or sick or in prison. Surely if we would have seen you, we would have stopped, Lord. He said, no, no. He said, when you refuse to do it for the least of these, you refused to do it for me. Jesus is the man on the street. He's the man in front of that grocery store. Like the way you treat him, a person made in the image of God, is a direct reflection of what we think about God. And notice that reply. They say, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or need? When did we see you? Open your eyes. See him. See the need. Take off the blinders. And here's the deal. If you have trouble finding needs, then go where you know there's going to be people that need help. Volunteer somewhere. Volunteer at a soup kitchen. Heather took her two boys there this week. That was awesome. Right? That's, that's, that's a great thing to do. Take your kids with you to go volunteer. That is a great thing to teach your children to do as a parent. Right? Volunteer at, at the refuge, the pregnancy help center. 
take time to ask your neighbor about their lives. Hey, how are you doing? No, no, I mean really. How are things going? How's your kid? How are things going at work? Even say a quick prayer before you walk into the grocery store. And just, just to kind of like get your mind focused on the fact that, okay, I'm going to look around me. I'm going to notice the people that walk by me in the aisle. And I'm going I'm to look. And I'm going to be ready for opportunities that I have the ability to meet. All right? He saw him. All right, number two. Number two. Not only did the Samaritan man see him, but verse 33 says that he saw him and then he had compassion. He had compassion. And that word compassion literally means to suffer with. It means to suffer with. The Samaritan man felt his pain. I can tell uh, those who I meet in my life who've been abused as children that I feel your pain because I was abused as a child, okay? I, I know what it feels like to go through what you're going through because I went through it. I can have compassion. I suffered with them, all right? Compassion means that you feel hurt because somebody else feels hurt. And God is a God of compassion, which is amazing. I was looking up all the verses uh, that have that word compassion associated with God, and Scripture is filled, filled with descriptions of God as a compassionate God. A couple of examples, Psalm 103.14 says, Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. He, when you hurt, he hurts. Lamentations 3.23 says, The Lord's compassion never fails. Isn't that amazing? And God's ultimate display of compassion was the cross. He saw our miserable state from heaven. He saw the mess that we had made for ourselves, the brokenness that our own sin had caused, and he left heaven and he came to suffer with us. And not just to suffer with us, but to suffer for us on the cross. And ultimately, his love turned into sacrificial action. Compassion treats the needs of another as if they are your own needs. A compassionate heart doesn't help others for what they can get out of it. Serving in love means expecting nothing in return. One of the things that I see a lot, and it's subtle, and I think a lot of times when we do this, we don't even realize it, is that we, a lot of times, will give with strings attached. And I'm not just talking about financial strings, like a, hey, I'm going to loan you 20 bucks, but you know, when, I need, when I'm in need later, you better get me back, right? I'm not just talking about, I'm talking about emotional strings attached. Don't hold people hostage for the good deeds that you do to them. Do not hold over their heads a, an act of service that you have given to them. Be okay with giving and expecting nothing in return. Be okay with giving and then if they curse you, fine. Just give out of love. I, I see so much a you know, if, if, if you don't do this, then I'm not going to help you with that anymore. Or, are you forgetting that time that I paid that bill for you, really? And now you're going to treat me like this and do this to me? Don't bring that stuff up. Don't bring that stuff up. That's not love. That's not compassion. It's called emotional manipulation is what it is. Don't let your acts of service become emotional manipulation. Just give out of the overflow of your heart, because 
God gave to you when you didn't deserve it. God doesn't expect anything back from you, right? He's not like, I'll, I'll keep you saved as long as you continue to do this, this, and this. But if you mess up, I'm taking back heaven and I'm taking back your eternal life. No, he doesn't do that, does he? No. We're saved by grace. Here's the, the key. You can't, you can't drum this up either. You can't drum up true compassion within your heart. It comes from the heart. And if you don't have it, then you need to ask God for it. Because you can't manufacture it on your own. And you may need to do some more thinking about how compassionate God has been towards you. Sometimes that helps us be compassionate towards others. But ultimately, pure love for others can only come from God. Because sin, sin taints everything about our lives. It even taints our good works and our acts of service. We need to be born again so that our Father's compassionate DNA will be in us. The Holy Spirit alone is the one that gives us pure compassion like this. So he saw him, he had compassion. Number three, he took care of the traveler. Verse 34 says he took care. It says that he went and bound him, bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. He put the needs of the traveler before his own needs. And so the priest and the Levite passed by. They didn't want the inconvenience. And, you know, here's the deal. I'm sure that the Samaritan was, you know, had plans, right? Like, I'm sure he was heading somewhere. We don't really know where. Maybe he was heading to close a business deal. Maybe he was going to see a sick relative. Or maybe he was just going home after a long trip to see his family that he hadn't seen in a couple of weeks. But whatever his agenda was... It fell by the wayside, and it did not matter when he encountered somebody in need. At that point, his priorities changed, and his agenda came last, and the injured traveler's agenda came first. Philippians 2, 3, Paul tells the church in Philippi, he says, In humility, count others more important than yourself. Don't just look out for your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Choosing to love your neighbor is always going to cost you something. It's not cheap. It's not convenient, and it's not always safe. What often keeps us from loving our neighbor, in fact, this may be what always keeps us from loving our neighbor, is selfishness. We say we love others a lot of times, but guess who comes first a lot of the time? Me, myself, and I, right? One of the greatest ways that we can put our neighbor's needs above our own is by telling them the truth about Jesus. Did you know your neighbor's greatest need is to know Jesus Christ? We can give them all the money in the world, all the care and compassion in the world, all the food in the world. We can meet all of their needs, but if they don't know Jesus, it'll be nothing on Judgment Day. They need Jesus. When you keep quiet about the truth of God's word, you know what the Bible says? It says that their blood is on your hands. That if you know somebody that does not know Jesus, and you know the way, the truth, and the life, and you don't love them enough to tell them about that, the Bible says that their blood is on your hands. It's actually like spiritual manslaughter to refuse to speak out and to warn people about the judgment of God and the grace of Christ that can save them. It's spiritual manslaughter, because you know what we're basically doing? We have something that they need. They are on the side of the road, bloodied in their sin, unable to come to God. 
Just like this man couldn't make it to Jericho on his own, sinners cannot come to God on their own. The only way is Jesus Christ, and we have the way. And when we refuse to tell them the way, what we're doing is we're being just like that priest and that Levite. We're passing by on the other side because we don't want to be inconvenienced. We don't want our reputation to be tarnished. We don't want our relationships to get messed up. We don't want people to make fun of us. We don't want people to be rejected. Serving others looks like laying that stuff down and saying, if I get rejected, if they hate me, I don't care if I lose everything. I love them more than I love myself. And so I'm willing to lay those things down so that they can have life. Loving others looks like telling them the truth. You know, a sinful world breeds selfishness, the worship of the self. Andrew Murray uh, was a pastor way back in the day, and he said, one of, the, one of the worst things that sin did for man was to make him selfish, for selfishness cannot love. That makes sense? It's hard, to, it's hard to, like, think about other people when you're thinking about yourself, right? Like, if you're self-absorbed, it's really hard to be others-focused. And I, and I agree with him. I think selfishness is one of the ugliest facets of every society, right? Um, I don't like it when I see it in my own life, right? I don't like it when I see it in culture. 2 Timothy 3, 1 and 2, Paul's writing to Timothy and he tells him um, what the last days are going to be like. And by the way, we're living in the last days. And... Um, We've been living in the last days since Jesus ascended into heaven. Here's what he says in 2 Timothy 3, 1 and 2. He says, he says Timothy, I, I, you need to understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self. First one right there. Lovers of self. Lovers of money. Proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, lovers of pleasure, so on and so forth. Are we not living in these days? Are we not living in these days? What's the mantra of our culture today? The mantra of our culture today is, I don't care what you say or what God says or what the Bible says, I demand the right to do what I want and to be what I want. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. I deserve to be happy, and so I'm going to do whatever makes me happy. Judges 21, 25 uh, talks about that in that period, it says that everybody was doing what was right in his own eyes. It's the same today. Everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. We've become a self-absorbed culture where it's all about pleasure for myself, satisfaction for myself. We're governed by a lust for autonomy, and it's killing us. It's killing us. Selflessness the opposite of selfishness is at the very heart of being a Christ follower. Because what did Jesus say? He said, if anybody wants to be my disciple, you must deny who? Yourself. That's right. You must deny yourself. The start of discipleship is to stop being selfish. To deny the self. To look not only to your own interests anymore, but also to the interests of others. I, uh, I got... Uh, saved seven and a half years ago. Some of you know this, and I, I went through a, a discipleship training program, a men's home for guys that struggle with drug and al drugs and alcohol, uh, guys who really needed a lot of help to get their lives back on track, because I was really messed up. And one of our mottos that we had that we would say all the time is, uh, it's not about me anymore. It's not about me anymore, because if any of you know addicts, 
or are familiar with addiction, um, addicts are very selfish and they manipulate and take advantage of people to get what they want, which is their next fix, right? Uh, that's, that's part of addiction. It ruins and runs your life and it destroys families and friendships. It literally wrecks everything, right? And so our motto, it's not about me anymore. It's not. The world no longer revolves around Jared. It's about serving Christ and serving others, even if it's costly. But how many of you guys know that it's more satisfying to give than to receive? Can anybody testify to that? Anybody experienced that in their life? Amen. So he saw him. He had compassion on him. He took care of the traveler. And lastly, he made the traveler's burdens his own. He made the traveler's burdens his own. He said in verse 35, I will repay. So he took the weary traveler, the injured traveler, to an inn, paid for two weeks, said, hey, just keep the tab open. If you need to spend any more money on him, I'll pay it when I get back. The traveler's burden became the good Samaritan's burden. That's what it looks like to love other people. That's love, taking on somebody else's burden. And hasn't Jesus done the same for us, church? Has he not taken upon himself the burden of your guilt? And your sin? Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're like, I don't know. But guess what? He can today and he will today if you'll call upon him. If you place your faith and your trust in him. Romans says, call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. And he will take your burdens right now. Your sin, your guilt, all of it. So in the same way, Galatians 6.2 says that we as Christians need to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? What's the law of Christ? What's, how do we sum up the law? Bingo. Bingo. And so Paul summarizes it. He says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill that. Bear one another's burdens. There are suffering people all around you in this city. What are you doing to ease their burden? How can we as a church do a better job of this as, as a community? The Good Samaritan did for the Jewish man exactly what he would have wanted to, someone to do for him. You've heard the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do to you. That's Jesus' quote from Matthew 7. Let me ask you a question. I want you to think about this. Think about it in your own life, okay? And just take a moment to have some introspection here. If everybody in the world treated you exactly the way that you have treated others over the past week, what would your life be like? If everybody in the world treated you exactly the way that you have treated other people over the past week, what would your life be like? We're called to love our neighbors as ourselves. Now, I'm kind of I'm going to land the plane. The question that prompted this parable in the beginning, if we remember from the start, was, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This is what the lawyer asked Jesus. Jesus said, love God and love people, right? And then he said an interesting phrase. He said, he said love God with all of your heart and your neighbor as yourself, and then do this and you will live. Well, there's just one, one problem here. None of us have done that. Who can say, I have loved the Lord with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength for all my life? Can anybody say that in here? 
Who can say, I always, 100% of the time, love my neighbor as much or as more than I love myself? Nobody can say that. That's a problem because Jesus said that's what you need to do to live. We've all failed the test for eternal life, which means that we are dead in sin. We are that traveler on the side of the road, helpless to overcome our guilt. But here is the good news, church. Jesus, the true good Samaritan, stepped in when we were dead on the side of the road. Jesus saw us. He did not turn away when he could have. He didn't owe us anything. He didn't have to leave heaven to come to earth, but he saw us. And not only did he saw us and not turn away, he had compassion. He came and suffered with us. He left the glory of heaven and he came to earth. And he suffered with us and then for us on the cross. He took our sin debt in our place on the cross. And he died on behalf of your sins and three days later rose from the dead, overcoming sin and death. Jesus loved you more than his own life. He said in Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man came not to serve, but to be served. Really? The King of Kings came not to be served, but to serve you? Church, that is glorious. He saw you, he had compassion on you, he loved you more than himself, and then he took responsibility for your welfare. He took your burdens upon himself. He took your sin debt. He took your guilt. He took your shame. And he wiped it away. He bore the wrath of God on our behalf. Church, helpless and bloodied travelers on the side of the road who can't get to God are surrounding us everywhere in our city. They're everywhere. And we as the body of Christ are called to go and go to them in the same way that he has come to us. That's why we're called the body of Christ. That's why Jesus gave us the great commission. Go make disciples, baptize them, teach them to obey all that I've commanded you and I'm with you always. He said, just as the Father sent me into the world, so I am sending you into the world. We are called to embody the love of Jesus that we have received to the rest of the world. That's why we have to look out. We have to. Here's how we want to do that specifically at Fellowship Austria. You're going to notice this thing right here, bless. Right? Bless is an acronym. Okay? We want to bless people. And so we're going to be starting today, we're going to roll out a new initiative as a church. Bless stands for this. It stands for begin with prayer, listen to someone, eat with someone, serve someone, and share with someone. And what I'm going to challenge each of you to do, I'm going to challenge each of us to do from here on out is I want us to commit to do one of those five things, one of those four things, the L-E-S-S, one of those things every single day. Every day, I want you to commit. So maybe you don't share the gospel or share your testimony every single day. Maybe one day you just listen to your neighbor. Hey, how's things going? How's your family? That's okay. That's all right. Like, do that if that's all you have time for today. But I want to challenge you to commit to do one of those five things every single day. So begin with prayer. Let me just run through them real quick. Ask Ask God, God, how do you want me to be a blessing to the people in the places that you have sent me to today? Just start your day off like that. You can do that every single day. You can start your day off by asking God, God, how do you want me to bless somebody today? 
give me an opportunity to bless somebody. Jesus said in John 15, 5, he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So we need to ask God to help us before we go out for the day. We need his spirit. Pray for your school, your street, your office, your family, our city. Pray that they would receive the one thing that they need the most, which is Jesus Christ. L, listen to somebody. Listen to people. Tell, let them tell you their struggles and their pains and their fears. This obviously means that you need to care enough to ask. And if you do, people will tell you where they're hurting, if they genuinely sense that you actually care, right? This can look really simple. Um, like, when's the last time that you ask your neighbor how they're doing? About their family, about how work is going. If we just take time to care enough to listen, gospel conversations will happen. Because what's going to happen is you'll get in a conversation with somebody, and they're going to tell you about how they're hurting in their life. And you know what you'll get to do? You'll get to tell them about how Jesus can meet that need. You'll get to tell them about how the gospel brings good news into that hopeless situation. That's what we want to do. So one of the things on this listen I want to challenge all of you guys to do is your neighbors that live beside you across the street in Caddy Corner. So six neighbors, right? Here, here, there, there, and there. Those neighbors, I want to challenge you to do something if you don't already know this. Get to know their first and their last name, okay? Get to know what their job is and how they feel about God. Those three things. Take the next several couple months or whatever and make it your mission to find out those things about all your neighbors, right? If you do that, you'll start having conversations with them, I promise. Brittany, you're going to have to, like, go down the road or something. I just, yeah, I saw your face. Brittany lives in the country. She lives in the sticks. She doesn't have that many neighbors. Okay, next, eat. Eat with somebody. So Jesus spent a lot of time eating with people, including people that he didn't know. Like in Matthew 9, after calling Matthew the tax collector, we see him showing up for a party at Matthew's house with all of his tax collector and sinner friends, right? We, uh, we do a program at the refuge called Levi's Table on Sunday night. That's what it's modeled after. A lot of the youth from the refuge who, honestly, like, they, today, they're the equivalent of those tax collectors. They're the equivalent of those sinners. A lot of these kids are rough. A lot of them have a lot of baggage in their lives. But we come together and we sit around a table and we eat, right? And then we talk about Jesus. Selfless hospitality, is, selfless hospitality is one of our values here at Fellowship Oshawa. I'd encourage you to practice it at home as well, not just let it be a value here at the church that you don't add it into your own life. So invite a coworker to eat lunch with you. Invite the guy at the gym out for coffee. Invite the family next door over for dinner. Try to do that once a week and just have conversation. S, serve. So here's the deal. If you, if you listen to people and if you eat with them, then they will tell you how to serve them. You'll figure out what their needs are. You'll figure out how to serve them. You'll get to know them better. Maybe you'll discover that this woman is a widow who can't shovel her own driveway, and you could do that. Or maybe there's a mom who just needs a break from the kids every once in a while, and you can do that. Maybe there's a guy who's lonely and has no meaningful friendships, and you can just you know start hanging out. Or maybe there's a, a family struggling to put, put food on the table, but we won't know these needs unless we spend time with them, right? Unless we talk to them. That's how we can be Christ to them. That's how we can show them the love of Jesus. Last share. So this is the most important one because nobody can get saved unless you share the gospel with them. 
We have to do this. And we're going to be talking more about it next week. We'll be talking about uh, uh, sharing the gospel next week. But here's the deal. If all we do is nice things for people, but we don't show them the way to life, then we haven't loved them. <laughs> we haven't loved somebody until we've shared Jesus with them. And we don't, at our church, we don't do undercover evangelism. And what I mean by that is like, well, I'll get to know them for seven years, and then maybe after you know that, I might tell them that I'm a Christian or share Jesus. No, no, no. Share the gospel early and often. Like, you can do relational evangelism and be upfront with the gospel. We need both, right? But I just encourage you, like, if that's, a, if that's challenging for you, go read through the book of Acts and, and see if they ever waited to share the gospel. If the apostles and disciples ever waited. Nope, they didn't. They were upfront with it. And we can be upfront with it, too. You're not going to scare people away by talking to them about Jesus. Because you know what? If the Spirit of God is actually working inside of them already anyway, anyways, they're not going to be scared away. They're going to be attracted to Jesus. They're going to be drawn to the light. Okay? So this blessed board, here's what we're going to do. We've got pins, um, like just little pins. And so each Sunday, as a way of reminder to keep this in front of us, um, if, uh, so say you ate with one of your neighbors twice in the week, then you're going to take two pins and you're going to stick it inside the E. Or say, say you shared uh, with one person, you shared the gospel with one person this week, you're going to take one pen. So every week you're going to come in, and whether you listened to somebody, you prayed that day, you ate with someone, you served someone, you shared with somebody, you're going to put a pen for every time that you did one of those things in this board. And what I want this to do is, uh, I want it, first of all, to be a, a tool for us to be able to celebrate the way that we are loving our neighbor as ourself. And I also want it to be a reminder for us where every Sunday we're going to have this up here, and we, it's a visual reminder that we need to be doing these things, right? We can't just talk about it, right? That's what the Pharisees did. They talked, right? They acted holy, but they didn't actually care about the people in their community. We don't want, I don't want us to be the church that just talks. I'd much rather be the church that does, right? And then you guys want to be a church that does? You guys want to be a church that actually serves people, loves people? That's what we need, right? Because, I, I mean, to be honest, a lot of what I hear from people in the community when people get, uh, people are down on the church, why is it? Hypocrisy, right? Right? They talk it, they don't live it. Right? So let's show them otherwise. Let's live it. Okay? So that's what we're going to do. So um, we're going to go ahead and, and wrap up. Uh, we do have uh, some discussion questions up on the screen behind me.